0: All right, we're live. Let's bring up the notes. So, welcome back to the East Coast Recovery Podcast. I'm Matt, and Lester's joining us again today. Good day. How's it going? Pretty good. All right, so today we're going to talk a little bit about anger and resentment, particularly, you know, within the realm I'm of... Expert.
1: Addiction. Personal... <laughs> experience
0: yeah I mean I know loads of friends uh, who turn to substance some you know usually it starts off as a casual thing but you know they get home from work they're a bit stressed you know, they just want a beer or you know they want to smoke something and uh, and you can see it kind of spiral you know sometimes it, it happens and you, you can as somebody that's sort of really new to addiction I wonder you know why is that why do people turn to to a beer after work and and how does
1: that become problematic well again the reason they most people like a drink is it works you know for in the um sort of the aa books it talks about you know that for alcohol for most people alcohol is just a, a way of getting a sense of ease and well-being it's a quick way to relax like taking any drug really which is kind of what it is somebody might want to have a smoke of a joint yeah. and uh, it'd just do something to them It'd change their way they feel and so for most people <clears throat> excuse me most people alcohol is a good thing it's a blessing I mean when you're like a 56 year old man that ain't been out to have a drink for, for over 30 years you also realize it's a bit of a blessing being able to drink there's nothing wrong with alcohol yeah in itself, I'm, you know that's one thing. Is I've never been against alcohol, um, but I'm somebody that can't control it, and uh, and I tend to abuse it if I start doing it. The best thing for somebody like me is to to not take it. But what makes it so addictive is it works so well. Yeah, it takes you from a you know from irritable and discontent to automatic feeling of well-being and so so I think not everybody that has a drink at the end of the day is an alcoholic or you know we just did a thing about you know is there a difference between sort of alcohol dependency and alcoholism and you know there's varying degrees of of addiction I guess that, that some people do become dependent which you know they they probably use the alcohol for relaxation every day and it's not a good tool for that it works but i think you know the 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 facts are in that if you're somebody that drinks a certain amount every day then it's going to eventually have a negative health effect and do you feel that it's is it more likely that people will
0: may become addicted if they're using it to to cope with something else it's not just it's
1: not my belief yeah. As far as I know, Remember, look, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a medical professional. I'm just somebody that's kind of worked in addiction and run a rehab for 30 years. So, yeah. you know, I can only give you my opinion. I can't back it up with any scientific evidence because I'm not a scientist and I've not tried to gather any. But my professional opinion of the, you know, I'd say I'm an expert by experience. But you know, working with thousands of people for three decades, and having the problem myself, my personal opinion is you either are an alcoholic or you are not. And if you're not, you're not going to develop addiction. Now, you might become a heavy drinker and you may even drink too much. And on the surface, you might not look much different from an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And the difference is that when the non-alcoholic is given a sufficient reason to stop or moderate, this is an important part of understanding the difference, that when the non-alcoholic is given a sufficient reason to stop or moderate, i.e., somebody says, um, you're going to lose your job, um, your liver's enlarging, your your wife's going to leave you, your husband's going to leave you, your, your partner's going to leave you, whatever the sufficient reason is, That that person still contains the natural ability to make the decision to stop or moderate. Mm. And most of us do that in our country, I think. Most of my mates, you know, for my living example, that most of my friends, we all went out, we all got pissed. You know, it was what, what you did. It was so, what your dad did. It was all the stories that we heard about everyone got drunk and all the crazy things, walking around with, like, traffic cones on your head. and you know. UK drinking culture. Yeah, it? yeah, it's brilliant. Massive. And yeah. it's brilliant. And it's fun. And you go out and you do all kinds of crazy stuff and get in all kinds of trouble. But eventually, I noticed that most of them friends, once they started to get sufficient reasons to stop or moderate, like... I don't want to go drinking on Sunday because I've got to go to work on Monday or I've got a new girlfriend and I want to go out with her instead of coming out and getting drunk with you lot or I've not got a lot of money or I don't want to feel sick tomorrow or I've got to drive or, you know, Mm -hmm. when they were giving them natural reasons to stop or moderate, most of them moderated and kept their drinking at a reasonable pitch. Yeah. Which allowed them to then go into the other phases of their life. <clears throat> Somebody like me, um, I made them choices, but never managed to live up to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't stop and I couldn't moderate. And see, in the AA book, it talks about what they call the other people. Now, the other people are the other people that drink, but are able to control it. Because, again, it's, just, it's, the, it's the dream of every alcoholic that they can regain control of their drinking. That's yeah. We spend years trying to try every method, drinking, not drinking this whiskey. We drink, move on to gin. We, 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 we stick to beer. We go out late. We only take 15 quid out. We, we, we only go out on Thursdays. We, we just start setting all these controls to help us stop or moderate but they always fail Mm -hmm. and then you always end up again at the end of a spree down on your arse again wondering what happened that wasn't what I decided to do Mm -hmm. so there's a big difference between the people that are alcoholic and the people that are just heavy drinkers and I think that really is a definition that I think society needs to understand because it seems to me that people don't even They don't even like to call somebody an alcoholic, mm. you know, yeah. which I think is a big mistake. I think it's an illness. There should be symptoms recorded, and if you're meeting these symptoms, then they should say you're an alcoholic, which, again, I think is a bad name because when you call someone an alcoholic or a drug addict, you're sort of reinforcing the idea that this is an alcohol or drug problem, which I don't believe. I think mm. at that point it becomes... Self medicating, see where them other people are. You know, the truth is, I think if it come down to taste, most people wouldn't drink alcohol at all. (laughs) No one really likes
0: their first sip of beer, do they? Well, their first sip of
1: wine. Even that, if you took the effect out of it, yeah, most people wouldn't drink it. You might drink, might as well drink non-alcoholic lager, wouldn't you? If most people that, especially as you get older, they, it seems the people that can drink don't drink. Yeah. They're like, oh, I can't handle the headache. So, if it was the, for the taste, but most of them people don't drink non alcoholic lagers. It's if you, mm-hmm. if you want a nice taste, you probably have a milkshake or a cup mm-hmm. of tea or a juice or something. <clears throat> I'm not saying that no one likes the taste, but it's the effect. Yeah, for sure. Most people do it for the effect. And again, being somebody that can't drink, especially in the early part of your recovery process where most of your friends are drinkers mm-hmm. and your social life is around drinking, that it's quite difficult to go out with your friends when everybody's drinking because people change. Yeah. And, you know, even if you're not really a drinker, the chances are when you go out with people that drink, you all will drink more. They call it defensive drinking. Because otherwise you kind of get left behind the mindset that's being created. So going to a party or something where everybody's having a good drink and a good time, it can be difficult to sort of join in. Especially in the early part of your because it's that they wouldn't be behaving like that either if they weren't having a drink. So but again, there's no pro I never had a problem with people drinking. And even in them parties, you can see the the parties that you go to where you get your um what would you what would you call them? They 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 sort of healthy, okay, sort of they're non-alcoholic people. You, you go to them parties and you know you notice the big difference that they're all having a drink, they're all having a good time, they're laughing, they're <clears throat> they're being a little bit outrageous, probably you know relaxing quite a lot and you know, but at a certain point they all start stop drinking, the coffee comes out. Yeah. They all get cabs and and they all go home. But when you go to a drinking party, it, it just keeps escalating, 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 and then, and then the fights break out, the crying breaks out. The It's like a kid's party. Yeah. I notice when I go to kids' parties, it's, they all turn up all shy, and then they get to <laughs> eating the sugar and getting yeah. to know each other, and then it sort of reaches this peak where the fighting starts and the crying, and they all get taken home. It's a bit like that. So so I think that from my point of view, you either are, I, I like to view it more like an allergy, that if you're born with a peanut allergy, you never know that you're born with a peanut allergy. There's no way a kid could be born with a peanut allergy and they go, your child's got a peanut allergy. There's no way of knowing that yeah. until that kid eats a peanut. Well, I suppose that's it,
0: isn't it? You, you kind of don't know that you've got that... <clears throat> You're an alcoholic until you've given it a, a good go, and you. Well, and, and, and again,
1: it's one of them things that for most people, it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's like you may start off the same as everybody else, but mm. then slowly you descend into this crossing this line, and then the addiction is completely developed, and then you notice that the patterns of behaviour start changing, mm. and and that alcohol starts heading up to the top of your life importance is that that becomes more important and relationships more important than jobs more important than, than everything and then you find that you can't stop and you can't moderate and really that's the thing if you're out there listening to this and you find that you've tried to stop and moderate and you can't then you're probably an alcoholic or mm-hmm. probably a drug addict and therefore you're probably going to need a certain kind of treatment to address that that issue you're probably not going to be able to do that without help
0: yeah so obviously it starts off you know it starts off great you're going out drinking with your mates and and eventually it it becomes a problem and starts to interfere with the rest of your life and and is that where the resentment starts is that where because i mean i see some people and they use alcohol or or substances to alleviate anger but then eventually
1: they can just well i think there's Probably there to a degree. Yeah. Um, again, in my experience, and um, is that again? There's there's a lot of talk from um, certain quarters now that addiction is caused by trauma. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if you're an alcoholic, an addict, it's because you've had a trauma. Now I don't believe that. Up to a point, I believe. Because, again, addiction is the human brain. It's very complicated. Yeah. But as far as I can tell, and, and again, being in a mass experience of talking to thousands of people and living very close to them, <clears throat> it seems to me that we've all got trauma, but not everybody becomes an alcoholic and addict. Yeah. So there must be something present in you before the trauma, the trauma I believe triggers it. I'll, I'll accept that. You know, because I've had people like one one case comes to mind with this guy where, you know, he probably because again, it's not about the drugs; it's about the mental condition. That mm-hmm. not everybody has the same mental condition, but all alcoholics and addicts all have the same mental condition, as far as I can tell. Even people like my sister that. Was was um, got familiar with a lot of the people coming for our projects, she once said this to me. She said, do you know, I've noticed that there's something the same about all of these people that come into your project. Mm. But it's different from everyone else I know. And I said, yeah, that's the addiction. That's the mind that they have. Yeah. They all share that mind, which is why they all like to go to 12 step meetings and groups. They all like talking to each other. Because they share a lot in common that they don't share with the regular folk because their mind is twisted in a certain way.
0: yeah.
1: And um, so it's that, that, I think that's either present in you or not. So this idea that trauma um, is the cause of it, I don't believe that's the case. I believe it triggers what's already there. Mm-hmm. And it's, so if it's not already there, it's not going to trigger
0: Mm-hmm. it's like trauma might make you want to drink in the same way that a stressful day at work might make you want to drink it doesn't necessarily make you
1: well an alcoholic. i think it's like sort of trauma is like the peanut yeah. if you like it, you've already got the allergy the peanut just triggers the allergy but the allergy is really the problem but but if we can't stop you eating the peanut if you stop eating the peanut then you've got no problem with the allergy but But with addiction, there's a mental issue. So I think most people um, have been traumaed. And and again, look, it's it's, it's incredible um, how many people, you know, how many people are brought up in functional families where their parents were perfect and never did anything to hurt them. But then you go to the other end of the spectrum where you meet some people, it's like, man, if anybody's got a reason to be an alcoholic or an addict is you they've been abused by their family abused in care you know they've had a terrible terrible experience but then you meet people that say but none of that's happened to me I don't even know why I'm doing it it's like literally I I can't think of anything bad so I I used to ask this question to people I'd say look because again we get to do groups and so I would say you know why did you start drinking And then people go, oh, you know, my mum left, my dad left, I was molested, you know, I'm straight, I'm gay, because I'm blank, I was racially abused. You know, they always give you some reason why they started drinking. But then I go, hang on a minute, is that why you, you actually, the first time you ever drank, you said, oh, I think I need a drink because I've been abused. And they're like, oh, not Really? Well, why did you drink then? And they said, well, everybody was doing it. So you didn't start drinking for the reasons that you're saying. Now, the thing is, obviously, them other problems are real to people and they can cause psychological issues, but not everybody has them. But then you say to people, well, when did you first tell people that that was the reason that you were drinking? And pretty much everybody I asked said, they thought about it and said, well, when somebody noticed it was a problem Mm. and they confronted me and said, you've got a problem. Then they went, it's because, and give their reason. And again, I think, The reason that I like to even say that, because I don't believe that's true. But a lot of the treatments are aimed at saying, well, if you got mistreated as a child and it's caused you to have psychological problems, then what we need to do is give you therapy to remove your psychological problems, then ultimately you should be able to drink again. But see, what we've learned by... Now again, not every treatment process has been around as long as AA. That's one of the things about AA. Love it, ate it. Whatever your views on it is, there's some facts about it. And some of the important facts are this. It's the longest running treatment program the earth has ever seen globally. It's a global phenomenon. It's probably helped infinitely more people recover from addiction than anything else globally. Fact. It's not just because I'm a 12-step, but that's what I say. There's a fact. It's the largest support network globally. It's free of charge globally. It's user-led globally. Most treatment programs would die for that resume. Yeah. But what we've learned from that, it gives us a great pool of shared information and experience for the people that are pretty much on the front line of it, themselves, and that a lot of them people that stopped drinking, dealt with their emotional problems, dealt with their financial problems, dealt with their housing problems, dealt with their family problems, after some years of not drinking, decided they were going to drink, but very quickly they were back where they started before they stopped. Now that's an experiment that no one's really looking at. Yeah. But the evidence is there. The evidence is there that these people have dealt with all of them issues that these other people say is the reason that they're drinking. They've removed all their issues. And when they had a drink, they ended up exactly back where they started, which is an evidence that they've still got the peanut allergy. That no matter what, if you eat that peanut... <clears throat> the allergy is going to kick in. Yeah. So it's the allergy that's the problem, not all of them other issues that people keep saying is the reason why they're drinking. I mean, look, they ask people, why are you drinking? Like they know. How do they know? <laughs> they're only going to give you what they think. Yeah. yeah and usually watch. it's got to be a sob story because that's going to elicit forgiveness and money and, and support from you.
0: They're going to want to justify it,
1: aren't they? Well, yeah, a lot of people, oh, you poor thing. Now, Again, it's like, look, I always say this to people, look, you can have the best excuse on Earth to fail, but that's never going to equal success. If everyone on planet Earth agreed that you've got a good reason to fail, that will not help you succeed. But yet everybody, when you say, why are you failing? They give you this big long list of reasons. A lot of the time it's like... You know, it sort of drives me a bit nuts on the news and things like that when they go to the people that are homeless and say, "Oh, why are you homeless?" And they're like, "Oh, I've got an addiction problem. Oh, because my uh, wife left me, or my husband left me, or." But it's, and they go, oh, you know that's terrible." But honestly, if in my experience, if you track back that person's experience, and you'd probably find that the wife would say. They wouldn't stop drinking. they are become aggressive. They wouldn't go to work. The, you know, so there's always this, did your wife leave? Did you start drinking because your wife left? Or did your wife left because you're drinking? Mm. And my bet in 30 years of doing this is that drinking has been a problem for a long time. Yeah. And that they've not addressed it. But they're still blaming other people for their... Downfall, and again, it's not the problem. That's the reason that I talk like this to say, Look, if you think that's your problem, then you're not going to find a solution because that's not the problem. And again, like a lot of people with sort of childhood issues, it could take years for them to finally overcome them if they're willing to go in a therapeutic process, and so you know again I'm sort of trying to fly the flag to say I don't think that's the problem I think the problem exists in you before any of that happens that stuff just muddies the water and so a lot of the treatments that people get are not working because they're treating the symptoms not the problem which again why well, I don't like the word alcoholic because it gives you an idea that Alcohol's the problem or drug addiction because like drugs is a problem but I think once you've reached that point that's just the self-medication that you're trying to produce an effect in your mind that, that most people produce naturally that's not present in the mind of alcoholics and addicts which is what our programs do our programs kind of say look you're naturally missing Something that most people just have. So they always have the ability to stop or moderate because their rational mind in that area is working right. Your rational mind in every other area may work great, but where drinking and drugs are concerned. There's something missing. It's not present in you. That's what I've found. When anyone ever come into our rehab, when we sponsor them in the meeting... There's something missing in them. That's why we say they're powerless. So telling them, you know, like one of my friends says, he says, look, telling someone to stop drinking is like saying to a homeless person, homeless person, get home. Well, if he could get home, he wouldn't be bleeding homeless, would he? There's something missing. Yeah. There's something wrong with them. And it's the same with people with addiction. It's like there's something missing. That other people have. And so it's the purpose of our programs to teach them how to manually, if you like, develop that capacity, Mm -hmm. which is what we believe recovery is. It's like manually building in that ability to say no.
0: It's like reprogramming the brain.
1: Well, it's not a reprogram because I think they've never had that. It's actually installing some software that's not present in them. And recovery is like the software. Recovery is a thing that you need to say, look, recovery is a thing that you need to download into your hard drive because it's not in there. And so asking a computer to do something it hasn't got the software for is as pointless as asking an alcoholic and addict to stop drinking and using. They haven't got the software. mm -hmm. And most recovery programs don't have the software. They have all these good ideas about therapy and everything, but it doesn't work. And if it does work, then you're not this kind of alcoholic or addict. So we spoke, uh, you know,
0: about addiction and about the peanut allergy, which I think is a fantastic way of putting it. Every time, you know, we sit down, you kind of put it in a different way. And it just, you know, again, as somebody who, who knows very little about addiction, I'm, I'm learning every day and every time. It's the same topics, but it's just it drums it in a little, little bit differently each time.
1: Yeah, I think that's always been a big thing that I realise is I think addiction is misunderstood. I think that people don't realise what the problem is. So there's a lot of good treatments, but for I'd say the wrong problem. And then people that relapse, they're just not necessarily getting the right treatment because they're getting treatment for all these other things that make sense, but it's not necessarily the case. It seems like it should be so simple at first. When
0: somebody says addiction, you think, well, they just can't stop. But then when you get into the nuances of why... It's... Well, they
1: think it's sort of drugs. And then, they're, again, because people expose always that it's because of some um, terrible event in my life. Yeah. Then people make that connection that that's the problem. But So he's trying to also break down that sort of... I don't know whether it's a stigma that people just say, I don't think that's the problem, which kind of sounds a bit horrible because it's like you don't want to not validate people's traumatic experiences you want to say look, that's important of course if you've been abused it's terrible and it's going to need treatment I'm just saying it's not really necessarily the reason for your addiction because that person hasn't been abused and they're exactly the same as you so how do you explain that if your abuse is the cause of your addiction <clears throat> which is why they kind of then clumped it under the well it's just trauma And trauma actually doesn't have to be anything bad at all. It could just be you might be feeling vulnerable when your dad shouts at you. And that could create a trauma in you. So it's almost like... So throwing everything under the umbrella of trauma, you know, most of us would think it would have to be a bad trauma. But it wouldn't. Oh, that was a story that I was going to tell you. Like a guy that... He did have a... See, now, again, when I say addiction, I mean mental condition, not the substance you use. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you took all the substance away, you'd still be an addict and an alcoholic. That's our argument as abstinent base of saying, look, we're saying if you remove all of the drugs and alcohol from someone, which is called abstinent, they're still going to have the addiction because it's a mental condition. It's the drugs and alcohol are just the symptoms or a symbol. It's not really the problem. It's what they're using to self-medicate the problem. And so, if you took all of the drugs and alcohol off the earth, you'd still have ev- all these alcoholics and addicts. They would just be doing something else. Which would probably come down to, you know, behavioural um, stresses. It would probably be a lot worse. Mm-hmm. There'd probably be a lot more rapes, a lot more murders, a lot more nasties going on. <clears throat> but this one guy is a good example because he'd become... He was he he had all the makings of a of an alcoholic, but he never really drank because he found satisfaction in his football, mm-hmm. and so he just played hell of a lot of football, and that satisfied his problem. So he didn't really need the alcohol. But when he got in his thirties, he broke his leg, and he couldn't play football anymore, and that's the time that his drinking increased and then he become alcoholic and ended up in rehab. Mm. And so you you know people f- find a lot of different ways of of dealing with this mental condition. And so, you know, trauma is an important part of the puzzle and we need to learn about it because we've all probably got it on different levels and some worse than others for good reasons. You know, some people can get triggered with mild trauma, but um a lot of people can usually find pretty severe traumas in their life of one kind or another, so then it would make sense to blame it on or on that or look at that for the for the cause. But but again you do come across people that are like, I don't even know why. Yeah. I'll behave like this. <coughs> So, you know, I'm somebody that's been traumatised, I still feel traumatised a lot of the time. Life's quite traumatic if you've got this mental condition. See, again, we're not saying, I'm not saying, because I've come to the, that there's not really a cure for it, but there is a substitute, Mm -hmm. that that there's a better way of getting relief from this mental condition. But resentment, talking about that, it says in the AA literature that it's the number one offender. It actually kills more alcoholics and addicts than anything else. So it really is in addiction treatment, resentment and anger is a really important topic to to understand. Now, again, I don't think it's the cause of addiction, but it's like it's a fuel that makes it worse. It's like, like the, is it, again, it... It's almost like the peanut as well to the allergy. That if you've got this certain issue, then, you know, having resentments as well, which you're probably going to be more susceptible to if you've got a very um, um, sensitive mind and your nervous system has been stripped bare and not been able to develop properly because you've probably been drinking since you were 13 and... You know, because it, it kind of comes down to that. It's kind of like addiction leaves the person with a very underdeveloped nervous system really? because it's like antidepressants they kind of give you a buffer to life. so if something in life is traumatic and painful, then the antidepressant is like the emotional painkiller mm. it. it it stops you feeling that so much. Yeah. So it numbs you. It numbs you. <clears throat> so if you imagine, and it's not like this, but it's a, if you imagine that when you're born, your nervous system, you've got all your nerves, which become your senses, which help you navigate the world, pick up information. And really, parents should teach you how to make the connections of what you're feeling, how best to navigate it, how best to deal with it you know, how to understand it. So what you really want from the world is you really want to be able to get the information that's coming in through your senses, but then you want really healthy interpretation so that you can then devise healthy processes that kinda of get you through the world in the way that you wanna that you wanna go through the world. But if you've not had a good navigation system built, you're probably not going to interpret what you're experiencing very well which again is the problem the only thing i've learned over my 30 years in in uh, soed recovery is how to reinterpret my experience in a healthier light but also one that matches reality a little bit more the areas where that's i'm not so good at that it still can be a little bit traumatic i've got one at the moment so i'm having to deal with things that I generally find very uncomfortable but I have to allow myself to deal with that Mm -hmm. and hopefully with the support of the people around me and some professional help that I'll be able to redevelop my nervous system and my mind to be able to then cope better in them situations and then them situations will no longer be traumatic for me and bingo I've got a little bit more freedom in my life and less things that I need to 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 avoid. So if you imagine that your nervous system is like a hair, and that life is meant to ping it. And so when you're a child, you may have a difficult experience. You might go out, and somebody might call you a horrible name, and that really pings your um, little nervous system, and, and it really hurts, and, and you, you don't know what to do. You go into the fight or flight, so you run home to your mum and dad and say, "Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy called me a terrible name, and I really don't like him, and I really hurt." And, <clears throat> and then it's kind of their job, if they're like well-adjusted, to say, acknowledge and validate your feeling, then explain that it was kind of wrong of Jimmy. Maybe Jimmy's having a bad day. Maybe Jimmy didn't mean it. Maybe you need to go back and speak to Jimmy and tell him that he hurt your feelings and and hopefully Jimmy will say, I'm sorry, I didn't realise that or I only did it because you, and then you negotiate with Jimmy and hopefully you can build a better relationship and and, and then we're supposed to develop like that, which is kind of what makes human existence and relationships so complex. But it's built into us to be able to develop these skills Mm -hmm. and but while that's happening you're building a little bit of insulation a little bit of meat on your nervous system yeah and so really where you want to get to in life is that you've got a good solid nervous system and that when the information comes in and hits your nervous system it gets your attention but because it's insulated you get all the information that you need without all the trauma and all the hurt and all the pain Mm. But if that nervous system hasn't built insulation around it, you're going to be like a raw nerve. So when people drink and take drugs, they're kind of stripping the insulation away. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So life becomes very uncomfortable for them. And it's the same with things like antidepressants. If you've been on antidepressants for a long time, you're not going to be able to... If they strip them antidepressants away, you're going to be like a raw nerve. More so than most drugs and alcohol that you see people on the prescription medications trying to withdraw from them. They're they're bouncing off the walls.
0: Yeah. It's
1: very difficult. Very, very difficult. You know, I, I say this, look, we can get you off heroin in 10 days. It's going to take at least six months just to begin most people getting them off of most prescription medications.
0: Wow.
1: I say, look... Drugs and alcohol alter your mind. A lot of them prescription medications mutate it because the goal of recovery is exactly that. It's getting you from stopping something or reducing it to come across that bridge. We call it the bridge to normal living. The crossing that bridge is where your nervous system is redeveloping itself. You're starting to grow natural... Me on your emotions. Now most of us can't do that on our own. Most of us need things that we call sponsors. I'm glad that I've had, and I'm blessed that I've had a lot of sponsors and older people that I could phone up. Oh, Jimmy called me a name. I want to smash his face in. And and they're like, look, you need to calm down a little bit. And they've helped me develop a little bit stronger emotions, but mm. I'm still very sensitive. I'm still very susceptible in lots of areas because most of us, we, we opt to avoid difficult situations, which mean you've, you're always weak, you're never going to develop. And so we all do that in certain areas of our life. And really the, the 12-step program is a program that <clears throat> encourages us to, to gather all that information, to have a good look at it, to see the areas where we're not doing so well, and then start rebuilding um nervous system by but the only way you can do it is to put yourself in the position but then navigate it in a healthier way and then you develop neural pathways which become part of your nervous system and then you it becomes a lot better so it's like one of the wonderful things is is that you actually start you know one of the things when I used to go to my first meetings would say, I can't believe how bad I feel, but I don't want to drink or take a drug. That was like the miracle. It was like, man, I feel terrible, but I don't want to use. And that was like amazing to me, but that also put me in the position to be held into a place long enough to redevelop my neural pathways, which is that bridge, which becomes part of my nervous system because... Whatever I'm thinking, I'm going to be feeling. So really, the only thing that I really needed to take responsibility of was this thing between my ears. This little lump of real estate between my ears was where I live. It's where you live. It's where everybody lives between their ears. Most of our life happens between our ears. It's in our thinking. But whatever we're thinking, we're feeling. And so... I had to change the way that I think. Now again, with most alcoholics and addicts, I'm very susceptible to resentment. I put my hand up. I've been a very angry person all my life. I come from an angry family. My mouth can be vicious. um, But I'm very easy to offend. I can see the fault in everything and everybody, at least from my set of standards. And... If somebody does something, again, I wrote down some definitions of resentment because, again, resentment is the number one thing that you do not want to do if you've not got a good, strong nervous system because it's going to beat you to death. And so resentment, we look at the resent anger. So if somebody angers you, the definitions in the dictionary were bitter indignation at having been treated unfairly. A feeling of anger because you have been forced to accept something you don't like. That's the Oxford one. A feeling of indignant displeasure or persistent ill will at something regarded as wrong, insult or injury. Now I think most people that you meet, they've got usually got a bundle of them yeah. coming out of their childhood. A lot of the time it's justified. You know, a lot of people have been mistreated by parents, let down by schools, police, blah blah blah, friends. You know, most people have a long list of very feasible and acceptable reasons to be angry. But even justified anger is still going to destroy you. Whether you're right or wrong makes the difference. You know, we say resentment is like drinking poison, but hoping the other person dies. So if you're going to help that person treat their addiction problem, we're going to have to get them to live free of the resentment, free from anger, which is pretty difficult when they're so susceptible to it like I am. I'm just so susceptible to being angry. It don't take much to make me angry. If I had no way of being free from it or overcoming it, I don't know if I could live on this earth without alcohol. Alcohol is my last go-to relief. Mm -hmm. It's the medication that I don't want to take because it makes things worse for me, gives me incredible relief, don't get me wrong, I might end up on the street pissing me pants, but I'm not going to be bothered about that until the next day, because it works perfectly for me, when I take a drink, I get an immediate sense of ease and well-being, no matter how bad this world is, and no matter what condition I'm in, I feel free from the irritability and the discontent. And so resentment, it's like, it's probably one of the biggest battles that I've had in in my life and still battle with it, you know, because again, it's, uh, we do this thing in recovery called step four, which is where you write down all your resentments, all the things that you're angry with it. And most of us have a book of people and places and institutions that we're angry and hurt with and that we like to rant about and rave about and complain and blame why our life's failing and why we're in the situation that we're in. And, you know, when I took that to somebody, which is a step five, it's almost like a confession that you tell them, you know, you you speak it out in a way that I want to be free from this. And then as the programme goes on, it kind of shows you a way of how to, you know, start dealing with some of them issues. And that's step nine, is about making the amendments, making the changes, which is where the, the real liberation begins, because once you start focusing and dealing with these problems, they start going away pretty quickly. You start, you know, um, really sort of cleaning up the mess in your head. You get rid of as much of it as you can, and you get rid of quite a lot of it in the first sort of sweep of doing the steps, but you end up with maybe five or six things that are the real juicy problems in your life that uh, that probably need a bit more work. <clears throat> and um, But the first thing it says, and this I didn't pick this up until I actually wrote the program for our rehab um, which was important to me, that... It said this, it said, look, when you look at your list of reasons that you're angry, the first thing apparent that the world and the people are quite often wrong. And so that was always a little bit difficult for me. And again, the way that my mind is, it's, you know, I think it says there, it's like treated unfairly, if I've been treated unfairly, which I felt, you know, quite a lot that I've been treated unfairly. But it said the world and the people were quite often wrong. Mm. So it was the the justified anger, which was hard to let go of. But it says, and this is kind of the crux of the mental condition. It says, concluding that other people were wrong was as far as you were getting. It's like we're getting caught in this loop that they're wrong. And as that, replays, you keep replaying it in your mind. This is what the resentment is, is the replay. That we keep resending the cause of our um unjust behaviour or treatment into our thought process and then we keep playing it over and over and over. We keep spurting it out of our mouth to everybody and it keeps going and going. And while we're doing that, what's happening is like, I like to have this imagined. That imagine that every time you have a thought, a squirt of chemical goes into your body. So, you know, when you have a thought, it sends a signal to a part of your brain called your hypothalamus. Your hypothalamus then releases a peptide that goes into your system and then it docks onto receptors in your body and that's what makes you feel. Now, if you're just thinking about anger all the time, and this is one of the problems with people with addiction, it's like your fight and flight gland is on all the time. You're always in this state of fight and flight. We just wasn't designed for that. We was designed to go into that heightened state when there was danger And then you've got to decide quickly, your adrenaline goes up, am I going to fight or flight? It's like living in that state, this heightened state of fight and flight. And as you're running this offence or fear around and around in your head, you're just pumping your body full of adrenaline. And that's what I think you need relief from. That's where the drink comes in because it becomes so stressful in that frame of mind. Yeah. That then you need relief from it, because as you're, like it says, if you it's like drinking poison. But then hoping the other person dies, so whether you're right or wrong about your offence, it makes no difference. The effect is going to be the same. If you've been abused as a child and he, and you keep running it around in your mind constantly, you're going to be filling your body up. You're going to be re-feeling that abuse, and you're going to live in that state of feeling like the abuse is still happening to you. It's a cycle. It's a terrible mental condition that needs to be stopped. Now, you can take painkiller, which will make you not feel it, but it's still happening. Yeah,
0: just numb to
1: it. You're just numb to it, which is what I think is a danger of medication. Yeah. And giving people things like methadone and stuff like that without some exit, That you're just numbing them down. See, so for most people, depression is a very healthy emotion. It's literally telling you, you need to change, mate. Because you're pumping your body with depressive chemicals because you keep thinking it. So unless we can change your thinking, we can't change the way you feel. And that's kind of what you sort of learn through a lot of the therapies is that you can't, nobody can make you feel that you are deciding to feel that way. Now, you might go, well, I'm not, because it started when I was young. And so when you say to people you need to take responsibility, they often like, oh, I'm not responsible for being molested as a child or being abandoned or being bullied and all that. It's like, no, no, you're not responsible for that. That was terrible and that was wrong. The world and the people are quite often wrong. That was wrong. And But your response to it is what's making you unwell. Mm-hmm. and if we can't stop you responding to it then you truly are stuck in trauma you're con- continually traumatising yourself and then you generally hang around with other traumatised people and you keep traumatising each other because if the people around you aren't sort of saying look, do you, do you want to talk about it you know, you, you need to learn to stop thinking about it you need to go to therapy you need to, whatever happens you've got to stop that trail of thought so it's like When people tell you why they're an alcoholic and addict, I have to try and say, mate, did you consider that might not be correct? Because you telling everyone isn't going to make you feel better. It's going to make you worse. And if you keep going on about it and keep thinking about it, you're never going to be better, even on the painkillers. And you're going to keep self-medicating. But really, resentment is the replay in your mind. So I know that in myself. You know, I know that, you know, I can't afford to be resentful. So when it starts in me, I try and stop it. If I can't stop it, I phone somebody and I speak to them. Uh, If there's issues that need resolving, I need to resolve them because it's like I can't... Again, it's just this little bit of real estate between me ears. If I can keep my mental health in good order, then the rest of my life seems to work out all right. Mm. But again, because I have this problem, it's very easy for me to fall into that... State of mind, yeah. but without a program and without understanding what's happening to me, I wouldn't realize, Lester, you can't afford to be resentful, even if you've got a good reason. You need to figure out a better way to deal with this mm. because some of the things that it does in the body it says, Look, it says resentment. This is what I got off the internet this morning it says, Look, it's bad for the body, it could cause headaches and chronic pain, insomnia, high tendency for alcohol and drug use, high blood pressure, heart attacks, strokes, skin problems, stress-related illnesses, low immune system, can trigger cancers in the mind. It can cause depression, anxiety, exhaustion, worry, ruin relationships, make you verbally and physically aggressive, very negative, isolation, pushing people away or they don't even want to be around you, low self-worth, constantly venting or ranting at other people, talking to yourself, you know, it just kind of um, goes on. The good news is it is a treatable condition, but it is something you have to learn and it is something that certainly I have and and, and I still need support with it because again, I've still got the initial mental problem and so I'm very susceptible to resentment Mm -hmm. and again, the world and the people are quite often wrong, you know, especially in times that we're, that we're living in, but I've noted in my life that relationships are very difficult with Mm -hmm. people, that they don't always necessarily live up to my expectations, but sometimes they're just plain damn wrong and nasty and hurtful. And so, you know, it's easy for me to go, you know, I was wrong there, I need to forgive them, but when they're actually behaving badly, that's a lot more difficult and mm-hmm. need a lot of support with that. So you can see why resentment is a number one offender that yeah. kills more alcoholics than anything else. Because its it, it says one resentment causes hundreds of forms of spiritual disease. Mm-hmm. See, once you buy into one resentment, your mind starts collapsing into it. So... When you're as acutely aware of it as somebody like me, I feel my mind change and go dark. Yeah. And then I become more attracted to the dark conversations. The, the stuff that comes out of my mouth is terrible. Mm-hmm. Terrible. The anger I start expressing, the disdain, and it's because I'm in this dark place. Mm-hmm. But the moment I learn to let that go, my mind lightens up again. Yeah, and I feel fine again.
0: And having that awareness, being able to realise that that you're in that state, is probably something that a lot of people don't have. Well,
1: that's what recovery is. Is saying, look, this is your mind is closing because of these pressures, and I guess in a way you could say what really triggers addiction is stress. Yeah, you know, so all of these things cause a lot of stress. So, but it's not them; they're just triggering it off. So. I think once you actually realise that your mind is closing because you've sort of bitten into a resentment, having a good programme and sponsors and people around you that can support you and say, Man, you need to stop that. You know, I got I had great sponsors that knew, you know, whatever my protestation was when I phoned them, they wouldn't even talk about the problem. They would say, You need to let it go. They would work on getting once I let go, my mind would come back to my right mind. And then I could deal with a problem because mm. I literally become jackal and eyed. When I'm in resentment, I completely change into a different person, not a nice person. Mm. When I let go, I change back into a pretty decent person. It's, it's like having two minds, one where I'm okay and one where I'm definitely not okay. And a good addiction treatment is to try and identify them two minds and say, look... I mean, they use that analogy of, like, you've got sort of a a black dog and a white dog, and if you feed, you know, one of them's really angry and one of them's not, and it depends which one you're feeding. But I think that analogy kind of, again, it's just that realisation that whatever you think, you feel.
0: Yeah.
1: And I don't respond well to thinking angry. I feel terrible, and then if you feel terrible, you start acting terrible. But unless I let go of that anger, and so pretty much my whole life has been about me dealing with my mental health. And everyone's is, whether they know it or not. It's what goes on in between your ears, decides the way you live your life and the way you feel. Your life happens between your ears. My life happens between my ears. And it's what I'm listening to inside my head is going to determine. But, you know, I had to learn a lot of new Thought processes that I wasn't available to me. Mm -hmm. I've had to learn how to think healthy ways and I've had to learn what not to think and how not to think. Because when I think in them ways, I'm throwing fuel on my fire of anger. Mm. And if I keep throwing fuel on it, it's just going to get hotter and hotter. And so the first thing is, is like, stop throwing the fuel. You know, it's one of the things we say, look. You dig an hole, mate, the first thing is you've got to stop digging the hole. And then we've got to figure it out out to fill it in again. Yeah. So it really comes down to that. So there's so much more I could say about that, but that's kind of like the basic. I think that brings us yep. to the end of that one.
0: Brings us to about the uh, end of this episode, I think. But as we can see, it's a huge topic. And I feel like no matter what we talk about, we're always going to come back to this idea of... Yeah, I think it
1: it might be nice to labour on with some different people because, again, I think in addiction treatment, it probably is one of the most important things to to learn. Yeah. It's been for me anyway.
0: Sounds like it. So I'm sure we'll come back to the topic and, uh, yeah, hopefully we can look at getting some guests on in the near future and and maybe find some therapists and other people to have a chat with.
1: Yeah, well, we have got a therapist. Actually, we are going to arrange a podcast about um, emotional sobriety. Fantastic. We say a lot of people have physical sobriety, yeah. but they haven't dealt with their um, mental processes, so yeah. they've probably not got emotional sobriety. So we're to going to do that soon, hopefully.
0: Interesting. All right. Well, I look forward to that one. And, uh,
1: yeah, so, stay tuned. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers.